The PlayStation is a line of game consoles created by Sony. PlayStation devices include the PS2, PS3, PS4, and the PSP Mobile system. Tony Goddard worked as an engineer in the PlayStation ecosystem for 15 years, and he joins the show to give a retrospective on his time in the console industry. Developing hardware and software for game consoles differs significantly from the world of web development. Tony describes the culture of the game development world and the challenges involved in the domains of software tooling, custom operating systems, and streaming media. In 2010, the PS3 was hacked by notorious tinkerer George Hotz, a previous guest on the show and the founder of Comma.ai. This event was discussed by Tony in today's episode. We also discussed the modern world of gaming and VR technology. Tony currently works as an engineer at Melody VR, a company that makes virtual reality live music experiences. My favorite way to hire developers is contract to hire. In the contract to hire model, you pay a contractor to work with you on your company, and if you enjoy working with them, you hire them full time. Compare this to the traditional hiring model of bringing an engineering candidate in for several rounds of interviews. Instead of spending lots of time crafting questions to be done in front of a whiteboard, contract to hire lets you actually work with the engineer on a real project and it compensates that engineer for their time. It's always surprised me that contract to hire is not more widely used, but part of the reason for that is that there hasn't been a great platform that encourages contract to hire. Today, that has changed. Moonlight is a platform for hiring high-quality software developers from all over the world to work on your project or your company. You can hire part-time or full-time developers, and if you enjoy working with them, you are free to bring them onto your team. There are no lock-in effects. Moonlight does not charge you a finder's fee. They will work with you to make sure you and your developers that you hire are all happy. Go to moonlightwork.com sedaily and get 50% off your company's first month of hiring access. That's moonlightwork.com sedaily. And if you're a developer who's looking for remote work and community, Check out moonlightwork.com to join for free. I'm a customer of Moonlight, and I'm also a small investor. I love the platform, and I'm actually amazed that something like it did not come out sooner. Check out moonlightwork.com sedaily and get 50% off your first month of hiring access today. That's moonlightwork.com sedaily. And again, full disclosure, I'm a small investor in the company, but I'm also a customer and I love what they're doing. Tony Godar, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me back. You worked as an engineer in the PlayStation ecosystem for 15 years. How does console gaming engineering differ from modern web application engineering? It's extremely different, I think. The main difference is we're always aiming towards a really clear frame rate and we're always going for very advanced graphics effects. And I think one of your recent podcasts about Google Earth 
actually hit it on the butt and, and, and talked about it quite similarly, where Google Earth also has the same sort of requirements of having to hit a really fast frame rate and never be interrupted. Whereas when you're developing on the web, you are always, you never have that control. And it's a very different programming paradigm. You eventually joined Sony to work on the PlayStation 3. But before that, you worked as, well, you also worked on the PSP when you were at Sony. Before that, you worked at as an independent PlayStation 2 game developer. What games did you work on as an independent game developer? Yes. So I, I was initially got introduced to, to development in Japan, where we were right at the time that the PlayStation 2 was at its peak. It was kind of like the, the iPhone when it had its first boom, where everyone wanted to make an app. In Japan especially, everyone wanted to make a PS2 game. So our game was called Cam Station. It was essentially a, a kind of a, a video chatting online game where you play some, I guess initially some gambling and, and card and, and that sort of games against each other. One interesting way we, we kicked it off because we didn't have PS2 development experience was we started prototyping it with, the, with PS2 Linux which didn't require any special license or any special hardware. It can be off the shelf. And we were able to get it to a, a certain state where we could show it off to Sony and then get them to agree to give us a development license. What were the constraints of making a game on a PS2, aside from those core constraints that you talked about a little bit earlier with the frame rate? It's, I guess, trickier to develop on. I guess the, the SDK at the time. So, so on the PS2, you had to have a Linux box set up with a special flavor of Red Hat Linux. And from that, you'd be developing onto a dev kit, and then that dev kit would run it. So I, I guess at the time, it was actually quite easy to develop on. But since then, it's evolved so much where that, that looks quite difficult nowadays. I guess nowadays, everyone expects to be just on your normal desktop, being able to emulate it and then run it on your device. That definitely wasn't the case back then. The interesting thing about the, the PS2 Linux in the time is you were developing and running on the same device. What were the particularly hard engineering problems that you worked on in that PS2 independent game developer environment? Well, I guess one of the main things was we, we, so we were doing an online game with video chat and we didn't have the vast resources of GitHub out there. We didn't have the vast resources of everything out there. So a lot of it had to be invented from scratch. So I guess that was the biggest challenge. Other big challenge was, was actually getting the, the, the graphics to be a decent frame rate. So, and it was a small team, so, so kind of learning all that. We actually ended up using some technology developed here in London by, by the, the, the R&D team at the time. And that's how I actually initially started meeting the guys here in London and eventually ended up working for them. Can you tell me more about the tool chain and the languages and frameworks that you used? I mean, you're saying you had to build a lot of the tools in-house, that you know, there wasn't much stuff to take off the shelf, but what, what kinds of tool chains did you have to build? Well, everything's essentially C, and you're also able to use C++, but everything that they supply to you is in C, and you just adapt it up to C++. They're really up until the recent generations wasn't anything any higher level just because of performance-wise. And at the time, C, C++ was very still considered extremely user-friendly and extremely 
easy to develop compared to the past before that. So the the key is being able to compile your code on on, a, on, a, on your host PC, being able to upload it to the game console, and so you'd be able to run it and debug it in real time. And once you had that workflow, development becomes uh, quite, quite a simple process. It's just, I guess, time-consuming to some extent. Technology that's out there, a lot of it isn't really u- reusable. So there's kind of a core set of technology that the game console providers give you. And there's also a wide variety of middlewares. So that's kind of a the side business that, that spawned from game consoles being closed is, is these middlewares provide the tools and libraries that aren't traditionally available to the niches. You eventually joined Sony. And when you joined Sony, you were working on the PSP, which is the mobile version of the PlayStation. How did the constraints of mobile gaming compare to console development? PSP was actually by far my favorite favorite console ever. It was it was simplified in a way that th- there wasn't any complicated extra, uh, I guess, floating point CPUs to DMA to. There wasn't anything very complex, and it was quite simple to develop for. It was using a similar architecture to the PS2. It was MIPS as well. The GPU, again, was simple but powerful. And the, the, the tools and the debugging worked really well, where it was plugged into your PC, and you can quickly get stuff running on it and quickly be able to debug it. It was just an yeah, overall nice little console. I think that's one of the reasons why it really appealed to the homebrew community once it was cracked, unfortunately. But it was really it was massively popular in the homebrew community, making emulators and small homebrew games. And it was kind of, part of it was its architecture and its simplicity. You said it got cracked. What's the story behind the PSP getting cracked? I guess from from consumers' perspective, there were special firmwares which you could download onto the PSP. And from then you could run your own code and run code that people made. So there's a big community of, of emulators out there. So you could easily run like, Super Nintendo games and Nintendo games, and that was quite, quite fun and quite, quite, quite appealing to everyone to have it in your pocket. And then it evolved, and then people were starting to run commercial games on it and so forth, which wasn't exactly what what Sony preferred you do, did with it. But overall, it really drove a lot of developers to use it. Huh. Well, maybe let's come back to that if there's a a good place in the conversation to continuing the the story chronologically. How did working for a console company compare to working as an independent game developer? Because you were going for to working for a large corporation on a console from working as an independent... Well, I guess you were working on a small team for, for these independent games. That seems like a dramatic shift, both in terms of the company structure that you're working for and just the type of development you're doing. Well, I was quite young, and it was quite a, a dream come true in that. Like, my first day at the job at PlayStation, I had a PSP dev kit on my desk. And, yeah, and all of the libraries and everything that I could ever wanted to, to, to use. So it was quite exciting in that aspect. And it was always quite exciting to be kind of one of the first ones to, to, to use and to experiment and try and figure out how to use the, these consoles. And what was your job when you were working on the PSP? What were you tasked with? So 
I, I guess initially my my expertise w from my my PS2 days was working on kind of like a, a video streaming, video chat, and that evolved into video playback on the the PSP. I was working heavily with with the so so the PSP had a, had a UMD disk drive, and so proprietary little mini disk type drive, and there's also movies you could buy on it that were kind of like DVD quality. So I was working a lot on that essentially and that evolved to just kind of video playback in general and so on that turned into ps on ps3 before we had streaming netflix or anything like that we developed a terrestrial tv tuner with a really good epg and really quite gaming interface and with even some social interface where you can share with your friends and and, and chat with your friends as you're watching tv and that sort of thing there's always around video, streaming video, and interacting with video. We've done some shows about Netflix and other streaming video platforms. There are some prototypical challenges of handling streaming media. This is a, a problem that never dies. What are the prototypical challenges of handling streaming media over an internet connection? Well, getting to an internet connection, we're actually jumping a few generations down into kind of PS3 already. So oh, that's true. That's true. Right. Yeah. I guess we should start with like pluggable media. So the PS2 and the PSP didn't really have internet capabilities. They were, they were essentially offline. You could get an attachment to the PS2 that gave it an Ethernet, but essentially it was offline. The PSP had Wi-Fi support and it had some, some game sharing capabilities, but it was essentially an offline device. Later on in its life, the store started, and then the PS3 as well, started off fairly offline, and then eventually became online. It wasn't a while, until a while later when, when, when streaming video services came in, into the picture. Okay, and and so can you talk about the canonical engineering problems that that have emerged in the streaming media space? Okay, so on the PS3, so essentially we started off with terrestrial TV, which was had no bandwidth limits, and we were able to record, well, pretty much perfect quality video onto hard disk. When streaming videos started appearing, there wasn't adaptive streaming, so a lot of it was like your early days in Netflix, where, not Netflix, like in YouTube, where you'd see the, the kind of the buffering bar go ahead, and you'd always be trying to kind of chasing that buffering bar. And then that progressive download evolved, I think, Essentially, because we're located in Europe, smooth streaming, uh, Microsoft technology was one that took over the majority of, of our partners here in Europe. And in America, HLS, HTTP live streaming became more, more prominent. And at that point in, in the life of the PS3, a lot of the technologies were, were similar to what you see on a PC. So a lot of the video streams you'd, you'd play on the other devices would also be playing on the PS3, would also be playing on their TV and so forth. So I guess the, the biggest challenge per se was actually a harder challenge for a lot of the streaming services to get video onto their TVs than it would be to get onto the game console, because the game console was a, a far more faster evolving platform, uh, whereas TVs were six months, one year ahead. We're jumping around a bit here, though. <laughs> we are. We are jumping around. Okay. Coming back to the chronological thread. The, with the PSP, can you just tell me more about the operating system, the, the environment of the PSP? What was it? 
It was very much so similar to PS2 where it had a proprietary operating system, nothing really that fancy enough to boot up your... It was a, a version of Red Hat? Oh, no, 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 no. So the version of Red Hat we saw on PS2 Linux was was, was essentially sitting on top of the, the operating system. It was oh. running in its own virtual machine, per se. Oh, okay. On, on PSP, it was just a really bare-bones operating system, enough to get you booted up and into your game. An OS that was written by Sony? Yes, yes, yes. Wow. And that, that's pretty much... It allowed the same hardware to perform to pretty much to its max. And that's kind of always been the goal with all game console operating systems, is to eliminate any in-between processes, to eliminate any any complexities. I don't know how much you know about this, but when a company like Sony writes their own operating system for a device, like a console or the PSP, are they forking Linux? Are they forking something? Or are they just like writing everything from scratch? Usually they're... Writing a lot from scratch, but they're also writing a lot from their previous consoles, bringing it over. So they still have a lot of good code that they trust and they're familiar with. And that's kind of one of the crutches and that's one of the issues with the kind of the exploits that have happened over the years. So you'll see exploits on the on the newer mobile, the PS Vita, that are exploits that, that were inherited from the PSP. And you'll see exploits on the PS2 that were inherited from the PS1. So you kind of have that inherited code base, inherited architecture always. But on the flip side, by having the same sort of architecture, the same sort of behavior, someone who's kind of making a game on the borderlines, they're making it on the PS2 and then they need to make it on the PS3 because the generation changed. It's not a major port. They don't have to rewrite a lot of the, the, the platform-specific code from scratch and change the whole behavior around what was the interaction between the hardware and the software teams within Sony? It really depends on the console generation. But overall, you'll have the, 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 core, the core SDK team, which will work fairly close with the hardware team. And then on top of that, you have kind of the general SDK team, which will be based in Europe and America and partially in Japan. Those ones will sit kind of kind of a couple layers away from the, from the core hardware team. The so the core hardware team will make samples and libraries that'll get exposed enough to kind of see all the hardware. But then the next layer of the SDK is to make it easy for game developers to use. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform that integrates with more than 250 technologies, including AWS, Kubernetes, and Lambda. Datadog unites metrics, traces, and logs in one platform so that you can get full visibility into your infrastructure and your applications. Check out new features like trace search and analytics for rapid insights into high cardinality data. And Watchdog, an auto-detection engine that alerts you to performance anomalies across your applications. Datadog makes it easy for teams to monitor every layer of their stack in one place. But don't take our word for it. You can start a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a t-shirt for free at softwareengineeringdaily.com datadog. To get that t-shirt and your free Datadog trial, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com datadog. 
worked on the PSP, eventually you evolved into a position where you were focused on this streaming media, including streaming video and streaming music. This was around 2005 through 2009. Can you just tell me a bit more about what you were doing then? And I think most of the people listening to this probably either do not remember or were just simply not even plugged in to the PSP ecosystem around then. They have no idea why there was like a streaming, so much streaming media and streaming video and stuff on the PSP. Just give, give some more insights into what was going on around 2005, 2009 and, and what you were building. So early on in the PS3, one of the key features, it was able to stream to your PSP. And then uh, essentially you could use it as a remote screen. And that was essentially using standard streaming media technologies. Streaming video was essentially an evolution from the terrestrial video side of things. So we hit the end of the project of kind of the DVB-T player, and then it was kind of from there, do we evolve into more terrestrial type video solutions or, or go up into cloud streaming? And at the time, BBC iPlayer was massively getting big. And they worked really close to uh, with us on technologies to bring the BBC iPlayer onto the, onto the PS3. And at the time, the PBS3 was, this was before they even had the iPhone version. So it was beyond, I guess, beside PC, it was their, their second most popular way of watching BBC iPlayer was on the PS3 at the time. And from there... So BBC kind of sets the standards, and a lot of the broadcasters will follow those standards. So it's from there supporting other broadcasters who have similar sort of services with the same sort of capabilities. Uh, and that evolved into streaming protocols like Smooth Streaming, HLS, and eventually MPEG Dash. What, what kinds of problems did those new streaming protocols solve? Why did we need new media streaming protocols? I guess the main issue across Europe was, I guess, quite extreme differences in internet capabilities from country to country, and we're supporting a lot of countries. So adaptive streaming was quite necessary. And Adaptive streaming, is that the, the bitrate ladder thing? Exactly, exactly. So, so it was, explain what that is. So essentially, if you have low internet cap bandwidth capabilities, a lower quality plays, but you don't buffer... If you, and as you, if your internet is higher, it, it'll step up to the higher bit rates. The key is no buffering. So lower quality, meaning like lower fidelity, like the just grainier picture, less refined picture. A lot of work has been put into this. So what you'll notice is on the lower bit rates, the low, lower, lower quality, they aren't necessarily that grainy, but they're more fuzzy a bit. What they'll do is lower you lower the resolution and you lower the bitrate, and as you raise your bitrate, you also raise your resolution up until your peak. And that way you get a, quite a nice step. And when it changes resolution, there's, it essentially just kind of snaps into place, and people are kind of used to that by now, but back then it was, it was quite revolutionary. But the first few generations were, were definitely just progressive video, and, and some of them even had choosing your quality, low, medium, high quality. So I'm starting to realize... It seems like most of your time working on PlayStation was actually working on the video streaming and the music streaming side 
of PlayStation engineering. Were you working on game development or game engineering at all? To some extent. So the, the, the game engineering side of it was to put a user interface onto these, uh, to take code that's general purpose and bring it onto this game console. And that's where knowing the game console and using the game console's capabilities came into play. Because it's not a traditional architecture where it's he- CPU heavy and the GPU separate. It's it's always quite a, a untraditional architecture, but it's always usable in that aspect. And yeah, it was a good mix of the two. And how had the platform evolved from the PS2 era to the PS3? What had been updated? What were the major technological breakthroughs that were happening on the PS3 that moved game development forward? So PS3 kind of caught up in a lot of spaces. So you had way more memory to work with, uh, way faster memory. You had a big chunk of GPU memory. You had a, a modern NVIDIA GPU in there. And essentially, you can run shaders. You can run you can run a lot of the, the graphical effects that you expect from a game. It was essentially just at that point bringing it equal or, or slightly above what the PCs were, were doing at the time and then throwing in some heavy floating point capabilities so it had its own custom chips in there and that allowed it to kind of exceed what a PC could do in its time. So And those were quite useful in that they could also be repurposed for decoding video. Uh, so... When I was using those, I guess, support floating point CPUs, they were essentially used to decode the video, and they're decoding them essentially for free because they're off the CPU. How did the PlayStation and Xbox ecosystems differ from one another? Because Xbox was coming up around the same time as the PS3, I believe. Yes, so the Xbox 360 came out a year before the PS3. Oh, so the first Xbox had been around for a while. Yeah, the first Xbox came out after the PS2, and that one was, uh, I guess, a good start. But the Xbox 360 was a very good piece of hardware, which I couldn't openly say at the time, but it was quite impressive where it had a unified memory, it had fairly good ATI or AMD GPU in there. and it had Wait, unified memory, can you explain what that means? So on your traditional PC, you have normal CPU memory, and you have memory on your GPU, and you have to kind of communicate between the two. And on the PS3, we had the same sort of thing. So if you're creating some data that you want to put up to the GPU, you'd create it in the CPU and then batch it up so it sends it to the GPU. On the Xbox 360, as far as I know, I've never actually developed for it from the specs and from what people have told me. Is this all the same memory? You just remap the memory to be to behave on CPU or behave on GPU. And you'll see that on modern devices, modern consoles like the, the yeah, PS4 and Xbox One. Yeah. Why is that useful? Essentially, it saves a lot of memory. So uh, what we saw a lot in the PS3, because it, it had 256 megs of, of CPU memory and 256 megs of GPU memory. But a big problem was when you had to process it with your GPU, uh, CPU, you had to bring it down onto the main memory and then copy it back up onto GPU memory when you wanted to draw it. Ideally, you want to just remap it so you can access it from the CPU, do your changes in line or, or whatever you want to do it, and then just remap it back up the GPU and use it as is. So the, so the, the whole unified memory is, is a big win in that aspect. So, so if I understand correctly, in the divided memory model, 
the CPU is like talking to the game environment and the the CPU is redrawing the world, then the CPU is going to render some kind of representation and then it's going to need to copy that representation over to the GPU. But whereas in the unified memory environment, it just gets written once to the GPU and then it gets kind of defined as, okay, now render this. Essentially, yeah. Most of the time you don't have to copy stuff over. Most of the time you can bring it up and, and always live on the GPU memory. But there's always certain cases where it's quite useful to have the, the unified architecture, but even just for simplicity of, of development. And that's a big win in that aspect. So yes, so Xbox 360 came out. It, it had a lot of fans in the development community. PS3 was harder to develop for with its kind of unique architecture. So that that was a challenge at its time. PS3 was also a lot more expensive, almost twice the cost of Xbox 360. And a lot of games looked better on Xbox 360. So it was quite a challenging time. What's your perspective on Nintendo? How How did that company play off against the PlayStation and Xbox ecosystems? They always kind of did their own thing. They stuck to different cycles, whereas Xbox always kind of latched onto PlayStation 2. Nintendo did its own thing and didn't really get in our way, to be honest. There was always a good relationship between the Sony developers and Nintendo developers, and often they weren't working on the same games and so forth. So there's respect on both sides. And then everyone loves that everyone grew up with the Nintendo games. So no one yeah, really, that's true. Yeah. A company still has such an affinity, you know, among everyone, basically. It's, you know, it's got such a strong brand. Big time, big time, yeah. I, I loved my Mario, and everyone I think does. <laughs> the PlayStation and Xbox ecosystems, were they, was that kind of like a zero-sum war between these two ecosystems, or did pe- did a lot of people buy both of them? How, what were the competitive dynamics of those two ecosystems? In the PS3 days, I think a lot of people were, were on different sides. And then I think it evolved later on in the, in the, in the console lifecycle where people had both because they just wanted the games on that other console. So it wasn't a horrible thing in that. They, they, they still ended up selling the console to people. They still sell, ended up selling games to people. But, but overall... It was a big boost in the, in that generation for the 360. And what about the the desktop gaming ecosystem? How does the desktop gaming ecosystem differ from the console ecosystem? I guess the desktop arc system is quite different in that. It's a different type of person. It's not one who's casually using it on their TV. They, they definitely have to have a far more expensive computer. So you're paying more up front, I guess. And I guess our, our, the standard image is someone has to buy a, a GPU that's more expensive than any game console out there just to be able to play games that are equal to the game consoles. I'm not a big fan of, desk, of PC gaming, but I guess it just depends on the type of game. Why not? Why, why do you prefer the console ecosystem? You can pick it up and play it. You can play it on your TV. You can. There, there's not just games. There's, there's especially stuff I like is being able to watch Netflix on it, being able to watch BBC iPlayer, being able to do a, a lot of things outside of gaming. And it just works. So it can, anyone in the family can do it. Why do we still need these consoles? Why, why not have all the gaming take place on my phone or my MacBook or some kind of like Chromecasted experience? Why do we still need a dedicated hardware device for gaming? It's a good question. Do we? <laughs> I think 
as time goes on, maybe we won't need it. Maybe we won't. But I think right now there's still quite a demand for these really immersive games, and some of these games even yeah include VR headsets, and, and really they're quite immersive and quite a, a step ahead of what you have on your on your phone or on your tablet by far. So, so if we if we jump forward to VR, you worked some on VR at PlayStation. Let's talk a little bit about that. Then maybe, maybe we can talk. We can talk a little bit about you know the Oculus or, or other VR environments. But you worked on in PlayStation R and D from 2012 to 2017. Can you tell me more about what kinds of R and D projects you were working on? The majority were so again based around video. So anything VR related was around playing back video, playing back 3D videos, playing back 360 videos. So I was quite involved in 3D TVs at the time because a lot of the content was 3D video content. And some of the kind of proof of concept work out there with, with head tracking and so forth, which kind of evolved into a lot of what became the PSVR headset. PSVR kind of evolved at a similar time to Oculus and it, it took a very different way and so so instead of kind of brute force they went more for towards kind of a simpler way of rendering to ensure that you had kind of very smooth head tracking it's not the highest resolution but it's a very smooth head tracking smooth experience and and, and quite appealing to the, the average gamer and that they don't get sick and it's quite comfortable can you tell me about the the runtime loop there? Because it sounds like so if I'm wearing a VR headset, it's doing head tracking, it's rendering a 3D video onto my screen. Latency needs to be really low. What's the runtime loop look like? So that's a nice thing about having it on kind of a custom operating system in that access to video frames before they're in the frame buffer before they're required is possible so that tricks can be made to reduce the latency of the video that's on the headset. So essentially, due to that capabilities, the, the, the uh, I guess the initial PSVR could pull off 120 hertz, which really gave that smooth head tracking, even though the game itself only had to render 60 hertz at 1080p, which is quite achievable on pretty much even the standard PS4 game console. We're jumping around a bit more, but <laughs> sorry. Well, we are. It's no, hard that's for okay. people to follow this a bit because we're. No, that's okay. Let's 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 double down on VR for a little bit. So tell me okay. more about like the lower level engineering aspects of building a VR framework or building a VR environment. What are the hard engineering problems that you have to solve? So the hardest. Oh, there's many, many, <laughs> but yes, uh, when, when, when the biggest one, is, as I touched on, is kind of your head tracking. So what you see on your screen needs to move when you move your head, and it needs to move fast enough that your eyes don't get confused. So when I'm working with video, it doesn't necessarily have to be attached to that head tracking. So your video can be running at 24 hertz. It could be film-style video. But if your head's moving in, in uh, I guess, a refresh rate of, of 120 hertz, then it doesn't feel odd at all. So you could be watching a film, which feels like it's a film stock 24 hertz video, but with by moving your head, you still get the feeling that you're in that immersive experience. So that, that's kind of the, the biggest challenge. So to handle the difference on all on all 
head VR headsets. So on the, on the PlayStation, they use a, a camera and lights, and they track that camera. That tr camera tracks the lights at the 120 hertz, and that's kind of one of their tricks. And then on other systems like the Oculus, like the HTC Vive, they use infrared lights and they use tracking through either cameras or base stations which are similar to cameras and, and track your head that way. And then on the flip side, you also have a lot of gyro sensors. Essentially, your phone is stuck inside the headset to give you the, the, the XYZ and any other portions <laughs> of gyro gravity and so forth. That's the biggest challenge, and that's why on the in the 90s when you had these VR headsets, they felt horrible. That's why even leading up to all of these modern VR headsets, you really couldn't play them for long at all because they just didn't match reality. And did you get sick a lot working on this stuff? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes stuff really felt I felt quite sick. I, I, I get I'm prone <laughs> to getting car sick, so I never want to sit in the back seat. But I, I'm quite happy to say that yeah pretty much on the, the last few generations it gets better and better and better so I never get sick on anything on the PSVR because the 120 hertz and like the latest headsets the Oculus Go, the Oculus Quest uh, no chance I'd get sick on those those are perfect tracking they're really good what are the key advancements that have been made that have allowed VR to... I mean, today VR, is it's not quite, you know, it's not at super popular levels, but it's at least at the levels where it doesn't make people sick anymore, people are excited to play it, people are a little freaked out in how amazing it is. What are the key technological advances that have allowed it to get there? Is it, is it like hardware? Yeah, a lot of it's hardware. So essentially, the, so the first Oculus Rift was taking pieces from mobile phones. And it wasn't until then that it was even feasible. So the the screens being able to be extremely high density and I guess LCD screens and and OLED screens with fast refresh rates, pixels that can be stacked on top of each other so you don't have screen door effects. A lot of these are, are still cutting edge nowadays and you don't even see on many phones. Pixels stacked on top of each other, what do you mean? So on the so on some of the headsets, including the PSVR, instead of having the the pixels like you have on a standard LCD screen right beside each other, because it's so close to your eyes, they stack them on top of each other. So when you're combining colors or when you when you have a, a single color, it, it is in in one big dot, and then there are other dots around it. You don't have gaps around it of the non-lit dots, and that makes a oh. big difference. So that's like the RGB. You mean the R RGB pixel uh, pixelation? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's one of the, the tricks that allows the resolution to be quite low on the, on, on the PSVR, yet still being quite, I guess, it's, it feels quite good. Because it's a lot of stacked pixels, a lot, a lot of resolution just stuck in the area right in front of your eyes. GitLab is the open source platform for DevOps, and the success of GitLab has accelerated the adoption of DevOps across the enterprise market. GitLab Commit is the official conference for GitLab, and it's coming to Brooklyn, New York, September 17th, 2019. GitLab Commit features discussions of technology, lessons learned, and a close look at the DevOps lifecycle, including Kubernetes, CI/CD, data ops, security, and remote culture. GitLab Commit is September 17th in Brooklyn, and you can save $99 on your pass 
by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit and entering the code commit99 to save $99 on a conference pass if you register by August 15th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific Time. GitLab is an exciting ecosystem of products, and it's accelerating the world of DevOps. If you can make it to Brooklyn on September 17th, check out GitLab Commit and go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit to get that additional $99 off by entering the code COMMIT99. Thank you to GitLab for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. There's this meme that the gaming industry feeds into the rest of the industry and the gaming industry often drives advances in machine learning and graphics and so on. What you're saying there is kind of interesting because you're saying that the mobile phone ecosystem actually, in this case, drove the ability for the VR headset industry to to catch up to where it needed to be. Definitely. Yeah, I guess the, 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 there's always a borrowing of technologies, definitely. So gaming industry will, has pushed uh, streaming video technologies in one direction, and then Netflix has pushed it in another direction. Mobile phones have pushed resolution and, I guess, sensors in one direction, but VR itself is pushing in another direction. So you're seeing AR capable on phones because those phones have been made VR c- compatible. Before that, those phones really didn't have the sensors capable enough to have kind of a really smooth AR experience. So it kind of just bounces back and forth as the, the, the niches become more popular. The software development process over the last 5-10 years has really gotten a lot faster, largely due to things like the cloud and quote-unquote DevOps and infrastructure as code, better release processes, some of these elements have come more slowly to mobile development, partially because the mobile ecosystem is fragmented compared to the web ecosystem. And I wonder, is it the same for console games? Is the release process and the development process for console games, is it still, is it still a little bit painful relative to web development? It's quite isolated in its own world, I guess. One big evolution in game development process. Uh, so, the the man who architected the the, the PS Vita the, and the PS4, Mark Cerny, has kind of like a a game development methodology. Then that's really taken over the game development industry by storm. In that, you essentially perfect your first level. You get kind of your minimal viable product out there, and then you b- develop your game. Before that. There was a lot of games where they they developed the full game until they realized it wasn't viable. So I guess that sort of minimal viable product has become a lot faster and a lot easier on mobile. And that kind of, again, is this this ping pong effect where mobile techniques of continuous integration will be brought back into games and debugging capabilities from gaming development will be brought onto mobile as the frame rate needs to be improved. So there's a lot of learnings from both sides ping ponging back and forth. How has the cloud impacted the world of game development? Has, Has the public cloud had much impact on it? Streaming of games has kind of 
slowly had a, uh, been building up momentum. So it's been around for, for quite a while now where you're able to just kind of from your PC or from a kind of a light client like a Chrome stick or so forth be able to play the games but it's slowly becoming a reality. I guess the earliest version that I, that I was exposed to that was being able to essentially play the PS3 game on your PSP over the internet or PS Vita over the internet. Uh, and then shortly after that, Sony acquired a company called Gaikai, which was essentially doing that streaming games from a data center into your living room. And then so Sony started a, a service called PlayStation Now, and I think Xbox and a few others have, and, and Google, of course, <laughs> have, have their own equivalents. And those are all kind of pushing forward. Whether they will catch on, I'm not sure, because they're very different. But but yeah, the next generation, there could be a new opportunity for another kind of niche, which is kind of a very light client, thin client. Let's jump back to that brief anecdote you alluded to about the PSP getting cracked in the sense that people could... <laughs> could upload SNES games to it or basically do whatever they wanted to with their with their PSP. What happened there? And then what was the fallout? I guess what happened was the security really wasn't that strong on the PS on the PSP. The, the the homebrew and indie developers really took over with a lot of momentum with it with their emulators and their homebrew. It was a it was actually a good healthy community and a lot inside of Sony really admired them and a lot of those indie developers became real developers and that was a good thing in that aspect i guess the downside was compared to like the nintendo ds at the time the psp owners weren't buying as many games and that wasn't a good thing for the spreadsheets at the end of the day a lot of people were buying the psp and and hacking it and playing emulators and and only buying maybe one game or two games in their lifetime as the consoles, so as the PS3 evolved, that was they wanted to avoid that, and they wanted to avoid people using their 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 game console as a general purpose PC with for for hacking and homebrew. They wanted to turn it more of a closed system. Yeah, it's hard for me to put myself back to in that time frame. I I wonder what would have happened if they would have kind of in- encouraged that sort of ecosystem I, I don't know maybe well i don't even know if the if the emulator stuff I, the emulator stuff might have might have had dubious legality as well so maybe you can't even support that kind of thing yeah a lot of stuff you kind of just have to smile and let them do it because they couldn't officially really grasp at that and say yes mm. emulate the super nintendo good boy yeah. good work yeah. <laughs> but, but 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 yeah i think what they wanted to do at the time they were seeing kind of kind of the the explosion of the, of the app store type mythology so they, they wanted to evolve more towards that aspect where you have a closed store and that's a high quality content that's really heavily vetted and, and so forth and that's what you have today and that seemed to work the key was just not to piss off the developers and really kind of get on their side and unfortunately the ps3 days they didn't always keep to that but on the after that they learned the lessons tell me more about that how did the playstation corporation alienate the developer ecosystem 
well, not necessarily the developer ecosystem, but kind of the, the, the indie developer. So kind of like what I was doing before I ended up as a PS2 developer, where I bought the PS2 Linux and, and prototype things. A, a lot of game developers were buying, or I guess indie developers, hobbyists and so forth, were buying the PS3 at the time. We're, we're yeah, jumping back to the PS3 days. And they were running other operating systems. So it was a feature of the PS3 when it first launched, where you could run Linux, FreeBSD, and then there was a various flavors of Red Hat and Ubuntu and a whole bunch of different distributions. So it's quite a thriving uh, system there. The architecture is quite interesting in that you could really do some complicated maths with, with the coprocessors in there. So it was, it was almost like a early guess AI type physics processing. There's a whole bunch of different uses for that. That was going well until a hacker discovered an exploit and that kind of locked things down and then causing PlayStation to eliminate that feature and I guess upset a lot of these indie developers and a lot of these uh, hackers and, and sparked the interest of, of the research, of the security researchers. So that hacker was George Hotz, right? Yeah. So he is a previous guest on the show. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I gotta find that one. Oh. <laughs> it's a good one. He's pretty oh. funny. Uh, have you ever, have you seen any videos of him? I have, I have, I have. He, he's, he's, a, he's an entertaining guy. So he hacked the PS3 in 2010. Can you retell that story? And it, like, tell me the fallout of, the, of that PS3 hack in a little more detail. Okay, well, I can give you the, what's available on the Wikipedia, because I can't tell you what was going on on the other side, but I <laughs> okay, can tell sure. you That's roughly fine. what was going on in general. So, yeah, so in 2010, he uh, announced the breach. He didn't really release anything. He just said, I have hacked PS3. And he gave an, enough proof that it, it, it proved to the guys inside that he was, was telling the truth. Uh-oh. And that was enough for them to lock down the other OS and kind of upset the, the rest of the indie world, the homebrew world. And then GeoHots kind of became a bit famous in that aspect for doing that. He was quite young at the time. He made a song on YouTube about it. It was quite interesting. <laughs> and also at the time that the PSP homebrew world was quite thriving. So that group was also quite upset. What are they doing? And then that snowballed into a year later, so 2011, released the root keys so essentially the the keys to the safe and that really ruffled a lot of feathers and ended up getting him sued and that snowballed into pissing off even more people and Sony getting hacked and oh yes <laughs> the the rest is tracked heavily on, on Wikipedia okay <laughs> uh, let let's zoom out a bit you you were in the gaming industry for 15 years what are your high-level takeaways about business and, and developer ecosystems from your 15 years in gaming? The nice thing, I guess, about the game console uh, side of things is it's quite an isolated world from standard PC or mobile development. And it, when done right, it's, it's a massive market. So there's still big opportunities in, in that side and still big opportunities to be made. I guess another big opportunity is because there's a massive market and they heavily vet the titles on on the game consoles and because it's quite complex to become a licensed developer and to actually go through the whole process anything that kind of gets to the end of the, of the process gets a lot of attention a lot more attention than you would get on on a website or on a mobile app 
So that's a kind of a big advantage to that still. And the technology, because it's such a light operating system, because it's such a fast console, fast device, you can really exceed the performance of any other PC or any mobile game or app you'd ever make and have kind of the, the, the premium version of it on this game console. I remember the first time I downloaded an indie game on, I think I downloaded an indie game onto a, was it a Wii? It might've been a Wii. I'm not much of a gamer, but I just remember the first first time I, I read about an indie game and I downloaded, I, th- I believe, to some kind of console. And I just remember thinking, this is such a cool development when the indie game world started to develop and you could just download games that were made by these one or two people and it's just so cool. What have been the effects of the development of that that indie game, that indie ecosystem? Well, from that, so I think especially after all the, the kind of the, the, the George Hotz problems, Sony and, and I think even all the other, especially Sony and Microsoft, uh, they really embraced the indie community. They really worked hard to to find all these indie games and to to really bring them into the, the, the professional game developer world. So giving them hardware instead of selling them $10,000, $20,000 hardware. It's really just loaning them hardware, going there and working with them and really bringing them onto the platform. So the, there's a, a huge push on, on, on indie games especially. And those are quite, I guess, quite important to, to any game console in, in that they're, they're, they're small, fun games that are retro and kind of, they give you a lot of memories from your youth and they aren't just these big blockbuster games. So that's a, one of the good side, side effects of, of, the, of these, the problems they had early on with the PS3. Our last episode, we, we talked a bit about the VR industry. How has your time in the gaming industry prepared you for the virtual reality world? I guess it was more so. So being my especially being more on the video streaming side, with I guess some aspects of game development. So the video streaming side, it, it was quite useful in my current position where we do live streaming and we do of quite high resolution, so beyond 4K VR content. And I guess the gaming side is more towards being able to debug and ensure that the frame rate is really high and and acceptable, which a standard mobile developer doesn't really work towards. So so for a lot of tasks, we, we definitely need game developers to be brought in. A lot of tasks, if we need to go and make a plugin that has to communicate in C or C++, then definitely a game developer needs to be doing that. Even on modern games which end up in mobiles, we still have to make sure that it runs extremely smooth. Give me a prediction about how the gaming industry will change in the next 10 years that I would not hear from anyone else. That's a good question. (laughs) I feel the way Nintendo has been kind of spitting innovation with the Wii controllers and then now with the Switch, with with the screen, is really moving in the right direction. I think kind of a hybrid of something which is mobile yet a console definitely still has its place 10 years from now. It'll definitely be something that's augmenting reality. It'll definitely be something that you can touch and interact with. Definitely be, it won't necessarily be something that you stick on your head, but it'll definitely be something you're looking through. It may be something that augments your vision to some extent 
but there's so many directions it can go it's hard to really guess i don't necessarily think it'll be a standard game console in the cloud i don't think it'll be that simple i think it'll definitely be more complicated it's going to be this ping pong effect of taking some technologies from mobile at a time and then bring it towards a game console and back and forth the the camera evolution on, on phones is quite amazing and it's quite impressive how every single kind of six months there's two or three cameras added to each phone and the use for that could could essentially be in gaming and the use for kind of shrinking that technology and putting it into glasses really could be used for gaming in 10 years from now. Tony Godar, thank you for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. Podsheets is an open-source podcast hosting platform. We are building Podsheets with the learnings from Software Engineering Daily, and our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, check out podsheets.com. We believe the best solution to podcasting will be open-source, and we had a previous episode of Software Engineering Daily where we discussed the open-source vision for Podsheets. We're in the early days of podcasting, and there's never been a better time to start a podcast. We will help you through the hurdles of starting a podcast on Podsheets, and we're already working on tools to help you with the complex process of finding advertisers for your podcast and working with the ads in your podcast. These are problems that we have encountered in Software Engineering Daily. We know them intimately. And we would love to help you get started with your podcast. You can check out podsheets.com to get started as a podcaster today. Podcasting is as easy as blogging. If you've written a blog post, you can start a podcast. We'll help you through the process. And you can reach us at any time by emailing help at podsheets.com. We also have multiple other ways of getting in touch on Podsheets. Podsheets is an open source podcast hosting platform. And I hope you start a podcast because I'm still running out of content to listen to. Start a podcast on podsheets.com. <laughs>